From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn why the Wisconsin legislature may be poised to pass the legislative maps proposed by Governor Evers. It's an interesting turn of events, one that I did not expect when this process began in December. But it makes sense when you think about the incentives on both sides, I think. Then we'll learn about a program that's helping low-income renters become homeowners in the Metcalf Park neighborhood. Plus, our monthly with Mosley conversation dives into the history of the first all-women-of-color military unit to serve in World War II. They uh, categorized all these people, all their mail, to make sure those mail, the mail went out. They had this cool motto, no mail, low morale. And they kept saying that to themselves, no mail, low morale. And um, they took care of that backlog. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. The name of the game in Wisconsin politics right now is redistricting. Late last year, when the Wisconsin Supreme Court ordered new legislative maps for the state, Lawmakers and map makers rushed to create new maps to fit the criteria set out by the court. Now, after the expert consultants have weighed in, some Wisconsin politicians have found themselves unlikely allies on uncommonly common ground. John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers with the latest updates on Wisconsin's redistricting saga. In some ways, it feels like not a lot has happened over the last week, Uh, but there has been some movement since last we talked, so uh, let's catch up a bit. Republicans have come out now with a more decisive response. How have they responded to the consultants' suggestions? Well, they don't like it, Um, but I think you can separate the consultants' report into two parts. The great majority of it is just them sort of confirming and standardizing the different metrics that each of the parties had calculated themselves in their response briefs, describing why their plan was better than all the other plans. Uh, And that part is not controversial. Uh, And then there's this small section at the end where they say, well, we think that the legislature's plan and Will's plan are gerrymanders. They use the term stealth gerrymander to describe Will's plan. And I've seen some people say that, well, those two plans are eliminated now. And that's, I think that's a misunderstanding of how this process works. The court can do whatever the court wants. The consultant's report has no sort of legal authority. It's simply a tool for them to use as they assess these plans. And the statistical analysis that the consultants do is not in question. It's done well. It's easy to read and understand. I encourage any listeners who are particularly enthusiastic about this topic to read it for themselves. And I think the justices will be able to use the statistical analysis the consultants performed to reach their own conclusions about which of these maps they like best. Now there has been uh, some movement in the legislature. They, of course, had voted on a version of maps that they were saying were Evers maps. Previously, they passed those. Evers said, you moved the lines. They were not my maps. Uh, Now it does seem like they may possibly adopt Evers' maps. What's happening there? It's an interesting turn of events, one that I did not expect when this process began in December. But it makes sense when you think about the incentives on both sides, I think. So 
when you look at those four Democratic-aligned map proposals before the court, the Evers plan, the Senate Democrats plan, the right petitioners, and the law forward proposal, of those four, the Evers map is a little bit better for Republicans than the other three. It's not a big difference, but it is a real difference. There's, you know, a few more seats that I think you'd say, well, more likely than not, Republicans will win these. Uh, and then also in the assembly, the Evers map pairs fewer incumbents, fewer Republican incumbents than the other three plans. And so there's the sort of parochial interest of at least a few sitting Republican assembly members to vote for that plan over whatever the court might do. I think the incentive for Evers to sign those maps, should he do so, is, you know, they're his maps. Clearly, he thinks that they, they do some things well. That's why he proposed them. And also, I think from a legal perspective, it would give maps a firmer foundation if they were actually passed by the legislature and signed by the governor in the constitutionally prescribed manner. You know, um, I've often gotten the question, right now we have a narrow liberal majority on the court. If there comes to be a narrow conservative majority in the future, could they just overturn this decision and put, you know, different maps in place? And, and that's true. That's absolutely the case. But it would be much harder for a future majority to overturn maps that were actually passed by the legislature and governor rather than just instituted by a previous court. That gets to what's been kind of interesting pushback from um, actually Democrats who believe this might be a kind of scheme from Republicans in the legislature. It, it's something that I'm a little confused by. What, what is the situation there? I suspect some Democrats recognizing that the Evers map is of the four Democratic proposals before the court, the least good for Democrats would, you know, prefer to have one of the plans that is better for Democrats. I've seen some argument that I think doesn't make sense that uh, a map passed by the legislature would somehow be more easily reviewable by the federal courts. This does not make sense to me because in 2019, a majority of the current justices sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal courts could not consider partisan gerrymandering claims. So that's off the table. And also, as far as the other avenue by which federal courts may consider redistricting cases, the Voting Rights Act, the Supreme Court has demonstrated that it's perfectly willing to intervene in court-drawn maps and legislative-drawn maps alike. Of course, two years ago, the Supreme Court overturned maps chosen by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So the idea that maps passed by the legislature would be uniquely vulnerable to challenge in federal courts is incoherent to me. I had thought it was, in fact, the opposite, that if the legislature and the governor were able to come to a consensus on a map, that would be less likely to be challenged later. Is that wrong, though? Are they basically the same regardless of who, of who passes these maps? I think it would be less likely to be challenged under state law in the state court system and probably more or less equally likely to be challenged under federal civil rights law. Okay. How likely do you think it is that the legislature and Evers can come to an agreement here? Because it, it seems like Evers is certainly signaling he will sign the maps if they pass his maps. 
I'm, I'm less certain about where the legislature is at. I don't have any particular insight into how the legislators might feel about this. I will say that the advantage to Republicans, whether in terms of the seats that favor them or the number of incumbents who are paired, that advantage varies between the Senate and the Assembly. And so while the advantage to the Republican Party as a whole, I think, is pretty clear, it's less obvious that it would benefit individual members of each chamber the same way. So perhaps they'll have some trouble coming to an agreement there. One of the questions we continue to get is about a potential appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Is that possible? Yes. So not along partisan gerrymandering claims. The Supreme Court has been very clear that federal courts ought not consider that, going back to that 2019 decision to that effect. So that leaves open the Voting Rights Act angle, although the Evers map as well as the other maps that we see leave the districts where that is relevant in Wisconsin unchanged from the existing map used in the last election, which the Supreme Court essentially forced into use by invalidating the Evers lease change map in early 2022. So that seems unlikely. And then there's this other long shot discussion you sometimes hear about uh, the Supreme Court intervening on due process grounds regarding Judge Protasiewicz's decision not to recuse herself. People I've talked to think that's that that's an unlikely thing for the court to take on. Although I suppose it's worth saying that if the legislature and the governor did enact new maps by statute, as far as I can tell, that would, you know, make it a moot point, any previous decisions made by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Now, we we know that they have a pretty tight timeline for all of this. One of the questions we've gotten uh, from listeners is, what if they miss this March 15th deadline? What would happen then? Anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) There's no government. No. Um, Well, it would be very bad because (laughs) people trying to run for state legislature, you know, the first thing you have to do is run in the primary and collect signatures from your constituents. And you wouldn't be able to do that because you wouldn't know who the constituents would be or which district you were living in because the decision handed down by the Wisconsin Supreme Court in December prohibits the use of the current maps in any future election. And that matters not just for the upcoming general election, but also for any special elections that might occur. So there's there's currently a right-wing effort going on to recall Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. And this is sort of an unresolved question of what district is he being recalled in because the Supreme Court has prohibited the use of the boundaries of the current district that he represents. So it's an unresolved legal question. They really need these new districts soon. I I think the answer is they can't miss the deadline. So what does the timeline look like as as we look ahead to the next few weeks so I, I imagine that the Supreme Court, who has been very clear that the legislature and the governor retain the right to pass maps into law, I imagine that they're waiting to see if they'll do that. And there's some discussion that there could be votes in the legislature this week um, about that. And if that fails to happen, then I imagine the court will be moving towards choosing a remedial map soon. 
All right. Well, we will see what the future holds and uh, catch up next week when, uh, assumably, anarchy will have descended on the state of Wisconsin. Uh, John Johnson, as always, thank you for joining us here on Lake Effect. My pleasure. John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette Law School's Lubar Center, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. At wuwm.com, you can find our ongoing coverage of redistricting in Wisconsin and check out our previous conversations with Johnson. If you have a question about redistricting here in the state, let us know by filling out our election survey at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM as we start our coverage on local elections. For first-time buyers, purchasing an affordable home in Wisconsin has become challenging. It's even harder for low-income residents. Interest rates have soared, and the number of available houses is limited. The Metcalf Park Home Ownership Initiative is looking to change that. It's a lease-to-purchase program that's opened the door for 30 tenants to become homeowners. The Greater Milwaukee Urban League and Axe Housing are two organizations that have partnered with the home developers to educate tenants about this opportunity. Lake Effect's expert Nunez spoke with Dr. Eve Hall of the Urban League, D. Kemp of Axe Housing, and Shar Brown, the first Metcalf neighborhood resident to buy her home through the program. Dr. Eve Hall starts by explaining how the home ownership program started. This is a program that was started probably now 17 years ago. It was between the Greater Milwaukee Urban League, Gorman Development, um, WIDA, City of Milwaukee, and this 15-year agreement, first of all, was around building these 30 homes. And at the end of 15 years, residents would have the opportunity to purchase the homes. What's important about this is that there would be an amount of equity in those homes. So that would give people a jump start. Why was it started? Um, In terms of just affordability and access to having that economic stability in our homes because in our community we don't have the number of homeowners that we should have as African Americans and even in the Latino community but especially with the Urban League we especially focus on the African American community. What we knew though once that 15 year period ended is that we now needed help though. You know we had the homes But in terms of the follow-up to really make this a reality for individuals like Shar, who is a hardworking woman for the city of Milwaukee and deserves to be, and thank God, the home she's in. Um, But we needed to have an organization like an Axe Housing to help us really work directly with the residents through the process, through getting the funding that was needed, the education that was needed in order to support them. And that's how we really became, you know, larger partners in this effort. Right. And so since you've started this project, you mentioned 17 years ago, how successful has it been since starting now that we're here in 2024? It's phenomenal. We will be closing on, I think we'll be up to five by the end of March. And we'd love to go faster, but 
what we've also learned is the process that we need to go through to make sure, first of all, these homes are purchase ready for our residents, again, ensuring that they are positioned for longevity and success in maintaining homes, and just, again, the resource information. But it takes time to do this. And we also have limited capacity. You know, Axe Housing, love them, but they're working all over this city. And so, but they were open to working with us because they knew how critical this initiative was and the part of town that we're also in. So this is huge. I know we have 25 more homes to go, but we are going to make that happen while we also make sure that Shar, you know, our, our initial cohort of first-time homeowners can be successful in retaining their home and also adding value as time goes on to their homes. I want to ask you, Dee, as Axe Housing is one of the partners of this home ownership initiative, what is the main role Axe Housing serves in this project? Axe Housing, our role is to make sure residents are ready to purchase. We want to put them in sustainable and affordable situations. Greater Milwaukee Urban League and Gorman were fantastic because they came to us and said, we don't know how to do this work. This isn't work we do on a regular basis. We don't know how to convert renters to homeowners. It was great for us at Axe Housing to have the opportunity to go into the Metcalf neighborhood, to talk to the Metcalf community bridges neighborhood group, to talk to the Urban League, to talk to our partners and say, how can we present this opportunity to residents? How can we get them excited about it? Working with us one-on-one, getting assigned a coach who's going to look at your personal finances and help you get to the point where you can be pre-approved for mortgage financing. And then the great thing about Axe is that we are a one-stop shop for home ownership. So we really had everything the family would need to complete the entire process, whether that was a real estate agent, non-traditional financing options, rehabilitation and renovation options. So we really were the organization that had the capability to say, okay, you want to be a future homeowner? We can help you with that. And we have everything that you need right here to get from A to Z. Right. Really um, setting up new homeowners, especially up for success with their homes. Absolutely. We believe strongly. We want to, it's not just about you getting the house. It's about you keeping the house. Mm -hmm. It's about putting you in a sustainable and affordable situation. That's how you build generational wealth. And that's how we close the wealth gap between the white and black community here in Milwaukee. And I really want to ask too, um, Shar, I understand you're one of the first residents who's a part of this initiative to purchase your home. How did you first find out about the Metcalf Park Home Ownership Initiative? I knew about the program being in a home, and I felt that that was my opportunity to become a homeowner and kind of build something and have a piece of the American dream. So, yeah, I felt it was very important, um, especially I've been in the home for 12 or almost 13 years, so that's a lot of equity I poured into it, so, yeah. Right, and I feel like at 13 years, almost 13 years, that's your home, right? Yes, yes, and that was another thing. I wanted to purchase the, you know, the home I was living in. And so what was one of the biggest challenges you had to overcome in your journey to becoming a homeowner that Axe Housing helped you with? Money management and building my credit. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I was not credit worthy or credit ready to get pre-approved on my own um, without the um, my home buyer coach, um, Tony, and without X, it probably. I couldn't foresee it happening if I didn't get the help, honestly, because being, um, you know, a single mother and paying all the bills, it's hard to save and it's hard to, you know, maintain excellent credit when, you know, things happen. Um, with the home buyer coach, it's kind of like I had to retrain my idea around money because it's not necessarily, you know, the fact that I didn't have, you know, leftover money after bills. It was the fact of how to pay my bills effectively and, and how to, you know, use my money and credit wisely. Right. And I'm just listening to you and I relate a lot to your story in terms of my mom and how my mom grew up as a single mom and just becoming a homeowner definitely seemed like an impossible dream to reach. But it seems like a program like this where all these partners are working together is really helping this become a reality for people. Yes, yes. I honestly, like... Understanding that it was going, there was going to become a point where I was going to, you know, be provided the offer to buy the home. I really felt a lot of angst because I'm like, I'm, I know I'm not ready. I know I don't have the credit, and I had a couple people go and say, "Well, go get your pre-approval." I'm, I, I'm not going to be <laughs> pre-approved, you know. So, you know, that created a little panic and a little discouragement because I just felt like, oh my God, like. Are they only going to give me maybe 30 days to purchase the home? I didn't know how the whole process was going to work because they didn't give us any information besides, you know, after 15 years, you'll get the option to purchase the home. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. Right. But when I received that letter and then when I went to the meeting, C&D standing up there telling us, we're going to walk you through this. We're going to help you. And we're going to make sure you get in these homes. It it was like a lifesaver. Like, it, it was, what can I say? Oh, well, it made my dream come true. It was, yeah, Thank it was Thank you helpful. for sharing that with me. I really appreciate it. I, I don't want to cry either. I know, right? I'm tearing <laughs> up. <laughs> the value of having support. Yes. And a partner. You know, it's, it's like when we think about success in life, there's usually a person who has helped us along the way in different aspects. Home ownership, we know that's a huge commitment. And so that speaks a lot to Axe Housing, to Deidre, I call her Harriet Tubman, she knows that's her name. <laughs> um, because she's so determined to make dreams come true for individuals who have an interest. And then making sure that the team is there with her every step of the way. And I think in the case of the Urban League, we can also come in and advocate. So if there are certain political issues that are going on or just different things that sometimes you need another entity to be a champion or, or vocalize certain issues, that's where we come in and partner to, again, make sure that the reality becomes true. Right, and I feel like this support can be really empowering for someone who maybe might feel like they don't have the possibility to achieve something like becoming a homeowner. And Shar, I also want to ask you, now that you're a homeowner, what does home ownership mean to you, especially being, I understand, the first in your family to be a homeowner? Yes. Well, to me, it means 
security. I feel that, you know, having um, equity available to me provides me with opportunities. So I feel safe. I feel that if anything happens, I can always have options, you know. Um, just being blessed with Gorman working with the Urban League and Acts to provide us the help is more of a blessing than I, I can really comprehend. So in a lot in a lot of ways it still hasn't really sunk in, you know, me being a homeowner. It's beyond my wildest dreams. So it's just like to me it's just the possibilities are endless, you know. <laughs> right. And I understand too that you are paying a little less or less? A lot of less. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A lot of less. That's right. A lot of less um, than what your rent was before. Yeah, because my rent, you know, I don't mind saying my rent was almost $1,100. And my mortgage is like 600 and some odd dollars. Wow. So that, that's a big dip. Wow, that's amazing. And so I kind of want to take it back to the mission of this project. So what is this project going to do for Milwaukee neighborhoods, but especially for Metcalf Park? We know that when we have homeowners, there is a different kind of commitment to the neighborhood. It's a different kind of commitment to making sure it's safe. When you own your home, as Char was saying, there's now access to resources because now you can use some of the resources you've invested in yourself, in your family to do more, something that people have not had before. So just think, we're starting with five, we're increasing to 30 homeowners who will have that opportunity. That's beginning to make a dent in this city. Absolutely, thank you. And Dee, would you like to add anything? I just think the great thing about this partnership is the holistic approach that we are able to take because we each agency has its individual strength mm -hmm. and resource that it brings to the table for each of the residents that we're trying to work with. So we can really wrap our arms around each family and figure out what the needs are, how are we going to get you the financing, how are we going to get you the pre-approval, how are we going to get you into this great opportunity for stable housing that you own. I feel like too often, especially in America, you know, being independent, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that's what we're known for. But the reality is that if the good Lord wanted you to know everything, you would. He would have made us all, all seeing, all knowing, and all doing, but he didn't because he wants us to rely on each other. And put our hands out to our brothers and sisters and lift each other up. So I think this partnership is just an excellent example of that because we're all in our lanes doing the things that we do really well to have a great outcome like Shar had. Well, D. Shar, Dr. Hall, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for sharing more about this impactful project. Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Eve Hall is the president and CEO of the Greater Milwaukee Urban League. Dee Kemp is VP of Programming for Axe Housing. And Shar Brown is a first-time homebuyer through the Metcalf Park Home Ownership Initiative. They all spoke with Lake Effects' ex Nunez.
Coming up later in the show, we'll tell you about Everywhere is Queer, a worldwide map showing where you can find queer-owned businesses. But first, Derek Mosley joins us to talk about the six triple eights, a central postal directory battalion made of primarily black women stationed overseas in World War II. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. It's Black History Month, and one way that Derek Mosley celebrates is by posting a new fact or story every day to not only educate others, but also bring more Black achievements throughout history to light. He joins me now to highlight a couple of these stories. Derek, welcome back to Lake Effect. It's so good to be here. So good to see your face. Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. I'm very excited. Absolutely. And we get an extra day. We do. So to celebrate, we're going to talk about a couple of topics of note that are, you know, generally of service, things that have helped us in the past uh, and continue to have an influence on us today. So to start, we're going to kick things off with the fire pole. Yeah. People might not think about this unless maybe since a class field trip that they had in grade school. (laughs) How does it connect with black history? Yeah, so uh, we're going to take you to Chicago, 90 miles south. There was a firehouse. It's the 1800s, so it's a firehouse um, number 21 in Chicago. There's a captain of that firehouse by the name of David Kenyon. And um, the way firehouses were laid out back then on the bottom floor was the wagon and horses because it was horse-drawn. Second floor was sleeping arrangements, and third floor were the hay for the horses. So they used to have regular stairs, and the horses are smart, and so the horses would walk up the stairs and eat the hay. So (laughs) they decided to remove the walk-up stairs and make a spiral staircase because horses are smart but not that smart. And so they had a spiral staircase, but not knowing that having a spiral staircase and also at night makes it really slow because the sleeping quarters are on the top level. So when a fire happened, the firefighters would run down the spiral staircase and get on the horses and take off. Well, um, one of the battalions, number 21, the fire battalion, um, was always getting to the fires first. And the way it worked in the 1800s is the first team on the scene got paid. Mm. Everybody else did not get paid. Competitive incentive. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, this firehouse 21 was at all the fires, no matter where they were, before everybody else. So the chief decided he would check and see what happened. And. They got called out to a fire. He went into the house, and he noticed that the they had removed the spiral staircase and had put in this wooden pole. Just a, It was a wooden pole that they used to move the hay on the top level, and they just uh, lacquered it up, and they would slide down from their beds right down to the bottom, get out, and be the first to the uh, fire, making all the money. And so once he saw that, he realized that it was a pretty good idea, and that was the birth of the fire pole. We can thank Captain David Kenyon for that. Absolutely. And then, of course, Boston made it brass, and then the brass pole's there. And now they don't really use them anymore, but um, it's still a a nice little piece of history that came from black history. Yeah, and I think it's still a quintessential image we think of when we think of firehouses. Yeah, yeah. And and now they're building firehouses all on one level because you don't need to store hay anymore. And so they don't need really a fire pole, but they still have them in the houses because, you know, kids like to see them. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to go forward in history a bit. So we're going to go from the 1870s to about 1945. The U.S. is in World War II for about four years at this point. And we are going to talk about the 6888 postal directory battalion. Yeah, so the 6888th 
uh, was their official term, and they were the postal directory battalion, as you mentioned. And so let's just set the stage for a minute. So it's the war, and soldiers are dispatched all over Europe, and they're traveling to different cities, different places. But people are still mailing them things like cards and cookies and cakes and things of that nature. But because of the fact, the transitory nature of the soldiers, they weren't at the same place at all at the same time. So they had these warehouses that were just full of mail. I mean, when I say full, if you Google, you know, the mail house, you'll see these these bags of sacks mail. and sacks, sacks and sacks of mail in these warehouses. Big hangers, too. Right. right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And they put big ships in them and I'll have mail in it. And so they decided to start this unit, the 6888, or as you mentioned, the six triple eights. And it was a predominantly black because sometimes you see it. They says all black. There were uh, two Latinas in the unit. So it's predominantly black, but all women of color. Um, unit, the first only that was deployed to Europe to take care of that backlog. And so they were shipped off to Birmingham, England. They got into the warehouses. The warehouses didn't have heat. It was the winter. They were dimly lit. They were fighting off rats and uh, roaches and all these other things. That... Plus that threat of air raids. All oh, the yeah. Time. Never mind yeah. the fact that bombs are being <laughs> dropped on you. But, of course, I go right to the rats and roaches. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, in inhospitable <laughs> working conditions. It's inhospitable, right. Yeah. And so they decided they would split up into uh, three uh, units, and those three shifts, I should say, would process this mail. Each shift would process about 65,000 pieces of mail each shift. And they would run them. And what's so crazy about this is they, were, they would catalog everybody's name and their serial numbers. And so when they cataloged those names, there were like over 7,000 Robert Smiths. Right. So you have all these Robert Smiths. You have all this mail. You have to make sure the right Robert Smith gets it. And they they uh, categorized all these people, all their mail to make sure those mail, the mail went out. They had this cool motto, no mail, low morale. And they kept saying that to themselves, no mail, low morale. And um, they took care of that backlog at 17 million pieces of so mail much. they processed. And uh, the government was anticipating that this problem with this unit could be fixed in about six months, but it only took them three. Three months, and they knocked it out. And, you know, it's almost so good that they, then they sent them off to France to do the same exact thing. You know, no, yeah, no, almost no, too good. Too like, good. <laughs> they even created, as you mentioned, the, uh, created a new tracking system that made this uh, new method and their, their unit so efficient. Yeah, and, you know what's also wild about it is the fact that they didn't have any guns. They weren't issued weapons. And so you have these women who are essentially soldiers. They've been trained as soldiers, and they're in these uh, warehouses, and they're processing this mail, and all they have to defend themselves is what they learned in uh, basic training, the karate or jujitsu they learned in basic training. And um, as you mentioned, about 7 million pieces of mail sorted. Uh, they were under the command of Major Charity Adams. Yes. want to give her a shout-out. Shout her out yes. as the first commissioned uh Officer ever in the uh, military. Yep. Yeah. And um, how many women were approximately in this unit? So there were 855 women who were part of the unit. And I think it's worth noting, um, Audrey, that after the, the war was over or their service was over, they were sent back home and the unit was just disbanded. There's no recognition, uh, no medals. They were just disbanded. And it wasn't really until recently that people were made aware of them. Um, but there are 855 women, I told you, made up of both black and uh, Latinas. And they processed all that mail with very little fanfare. And if you ever have an opportunity to see them on the Internet, because of the 855, there's only four who are still remaining. Um, and you could see them sometimes. You, you pull up a YouTube video. You could talk to uh, not talk to them, but listen to them talk. 
And they just felt like a sense of pride to get this done because it was a time of, you know, the time in history, a lot of division between the races and a lot of people didn't think that blacks were up to the task. And so they felt like they had the whole race on their backs trying to perform this so they couldn't fail. And so it's, they're great stories. And it's a little local twist to this as well, because um, we do have one member of the six triple eights here in Milwaukee, Anna Mae Robertson, who is the sweetest but she's fiery, but she's sweet. Uh, you got she's to meet like, her? I did get to meet her. So, um, what was that like? Oh, it was amazing. It. it was amazing. So what happened is, I, you know, I do those uh, Facebook posts every February, one post a, um, a day for Black History Month. And her sister reached out to me because she saw the post on social media. And she said, I can't believe that you did this. This is so amazing. And my mom was one of these uh, women. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I have to meet her. I have to meet her. And, you know, it was right after COVID had happened. And so... She says, well, we're having um, a birthday party for her. She was turning 98, and uh, her um, the mayor was coming to give her, like, a make it Anna Mae Robertson Day or whatever it was. Sure. And so they asked me if I wanted to come, and of course. And so I, I went, and I got to meet her, and she is absolutely amazing. You would never know, you know, talking to her, what they accomplished. Um, because, you know, you had to make sure the soldiers knew what they were fighting for. You know, you have these young kids who had— probably never left their state they were from. Now they're in a different country with in names of towns they probably couldn't even pronounce. And so home meant a lot. So if you could bring home to them, uh, bring food to them, things that they remembered, it, it's for morale. And so she said that's all they thought about is the soldiers. And she is amazing. And she turns 100 in March, which is Happy pretty Happy early birthday yes. to Anna Anna May. Um, and it was so funny. Over Christmas, I got a Christmas card, and I opened up the Christmas card, and she had copied her—because they received a commendation just recently um, in 2022. And yeah, in March. In March. 2022. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the president—and uh, shout out to Gwen Moore, because it was Gwen Moore who was the one to let everybody know that these women existed, and one was here in Milwaukee. And when she got the commendation, she sent me an invitation to the commendation— as well as a copy of it, like a photocopy of it. it was, and I opened up in a Christmas card, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And she signed it. And, you know, for me, this means so much because I follow black history a lot. And so um, I, I'm sure my family hates it. Like, my kids probably hate <laughs> it. But, you know, our vacations aren't, like, to cool places. Our vacations are, historical like, sites. historical sites. Absolutely. And so, <laughs> and so um, it just meant a lot to have a piece of history and to actually touch and talk to people because a lot of our heroes, and I mean our, I mean an American, heroes of African descent aren't around anymore. And so it's important uh, that we give them their flowers while they're alive. Yeah, we see, as you mentioned, these historical images of accomplishments made in the past, but uh, we need to take a, a look and remember it's not that long ago. No, it really isn't that long ago because we have a, a woman who's still alive who was part of the World War II fight. And when they came home, they still fought discrimination, right? So you, you're fighting against... Um, tyranny abroad to come home to be treated like a second-class citizen, but they did it with pride, and, they, and their service was with pride, and I have so much love and respect for Anime and all of the 6888s. Yeah, much thanks to Anime and the 6888s, and Derek, thank you so much, as always, for coming in to share your history. We love it. My pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to come and tell these stories. Derek Mosley is the director of the Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. You can explore our past conversations with him, including one about the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers, who are our nation's first park rangers, at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? 
Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then return with the founder of Everywhere is Queer, a website and upcoming app that maps queer-owned businesses, creating a network of safety and support. Lake Effect will return in a moment on Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. When you travel, chances are you're using maps to find your way around. Charlie Sprinkman grew up here in Milwaukee and currently calls Portland, Oregon home. He's visited 41 of the 50 United States, and he'd often search for queer businesses and other safe places wherever he was traveling. That sparked the idea to create an interactive map to help people find queer-owned businesses that everyone can use. In January of 2022, he launched Everywhere is Queer. Since the launch, Everywhere is Queer has been viewed over 1.7 million times and now has over 9,000 registered queer-owned businesses around the world. I spoke with Sprinkman last June to learn about the company, and he begins by sharing his inspiration for this project. Through all the travels, I was always seeking like queer spaces, obviously, and I just wanted something beyond queer bars. Um, I mean, I do drink, but during the day, I would love to go to a coffee shop or like as I'm walking around a city, like don't necessarily need to be sitting in like a dark bar sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was coming actually back summer of 2021. <laughs> I was coming back from Brave Trails, which is a queer youth leadership camp, um, which I was just at that camp. I was in a space of 100 plus queer folks. And it was so euphoric. And I was driving back to Boulder, Colorado at the time. And that's when Everywhere's Queer, Everywhere's queer came to mind. Um, I was like a worldwide map of queer owned businesses might be able to create community and support around queer owned businesses and have this similar like euphoric experience. I wanted queer people and allies to experience that feeling. And so, yeah, the idea of a worldwide map of queer owned businesses came to mind. Well, and I love how this resource also makes people think differently about the ways that community can be built, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's my whole goal. I mean, When I launched this idea, I was like, there's many ways that this can go beautifully, but at the top of mind is uh, local people finding community through these spaces on the map. Yeah. Outside of community, can you share more about the significance of a resource like this one? And especially I'm thinking about the deeper meaning it can give to the phrase safe travels, you know, for people who want to use it even outside of their own city. Absolutely. I mean, just to say one thing, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of DMs, but several that have said, hey, my partner and I now feel comfortable traveling across the United States, going on a a long road trip that we would have never done before. So thank you for allowing us to plan a trip and map out all these spots so we can feel safe as we navigate across the country. But just outside of like the community aspect, as someone that grew up outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I wish I had a resource like this when I was a kid. And so I could just go sit at a queer owned coffee shop and see queer people exist. Even when I was not out, I didn't come out to my junior year of college, but as just like a closeted queer kid or high school kid, 
I would have loved to have been able to go sit and once again, just see queer people exist, working, navigating through the world. I didn't have that as a kid. And with the start of Everywhere is Queer, I'd love if you can take us back to kind of the beginning stages. You're about a year or so into it, correct? Yeah, January 2nd of 2022, I launched. So a year and about almost a year and a half. Okay, yeah. So you're you're pretty young considering a new business, but already there's been so much growth. There's over 2,000 businesses listed worldwide. So when you were first starting this, can you speak on those beginning stages? What are those early days of your business and networking look like and consist of? Um, I mean, everything that you see on Everywhere is Queer, Instagram, website, everything, all designed by my colorblind self. Um, and um, so it's been a journey, like, you know, registering an LLC called Everywhere is Queer um, it was a little bit of a journey. Um, but the little things, I mean, I posted on Instagram January 2nd, and by March, I got picked up by NBC, um, and The Skim wrote an article on me, and now this posted uh, a big post about me. So I got some PR hits a few months in, which was absolutely beautiful and accelerated the growth of Everywhere is Queer, definitely. But those first few months, I was very much just sitting by myself, trying to find queer-owned businesses um, to, like, message, to let them know that we exist and that, like, what we're building. Um, and what I found is, and it's so beautiful, it's, it's really grown by word of mouth. I mean, social media as well. But I find that people hear of Everywhere is Queer and then they post it on their social media and it's like their community and then it just keeps going from there, um, which is kind of how it all started. I mean, I posted on Instagram and then it just kind of kept rolling. You know, we could look at the lens of, you know, at uh, first Everywhere is Queer is also like an internal motivation. Like I would have loved this as I was navigating and I want other people to have this. But outside of that motivation to, to for the community to have this resource, have you ever considered or pictured yourself as a founder? Um, I've kind of always been a little entrepreneur as a kid, you know, like in grade school, I was bedazzling pens and selling them for 25 cents, even though they <laughs> took me hours to make, um, clearly a, a sign that I might have been queer. Um, <laughs> uh, I've just always been a little bit of an entrepreneur and I've always like kind of told myself, like, I would love to start my own business one day. I would love to work for myself. And yeah, I'm really grateful to say that I am full-time everywhere is queer now, which is obviously really scary. I'm not making millions of dollars or anything like that, but I'm taking this leap and I'm putting faith in myself. And every time I sign my email as founder and CEO, I feel so, you know, <laughs> proud of myself. <laughs> so with starting this company and growing it by word of mouth, can you explain the process of how a queer owned business gets on your map? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, if you are a queer-owned business, you can visit www.everywhereisqueer.com. You can click any of the links in any of my social media um, channels, which is just Everywhere is Queer, Instagram, TikTok. Um, so you'll land on our, my homepage and my website, which will then you'll see form to be on map. It's a short application to apply to be on the map. And then um, a few days later, uh, I will let you know when you've been added to the map. I was exploring the map a little bit, and there's different categories you have for businesses. Can you explain some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got retail, so like brick and mortar. So we welcome any like online stores. You do not have to be brick and mortar. You can just be, you know, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, you don't have to put your physical address. Um, so if you have like an Etsy store or anything like that. So we have the category of online stores. We have real estate agents. We have therapists. I have a creative category, which is a lot of artists, tattoo artists, 
We have an outdoor recreation category. Um, yeah, there's 14 different categories. Um, and it's so easy to just like filter by category wherever you are. Um, yeah. And with connecting with queer business owners around the country, around the globe, whether you're doing that initial outreach or they're connecting with you, what's some of your favorite parts about connecting with these business owners? You know, it's the passion and creativity. Also just seeing the amount of inclusivity through all of these brands. Like I keep landing on obviously queer own businesses websites as I like check them out as they apply. And it's just incredible the amount of inclusivity in all of these brands. You know, it's like so much maybe not binary clothing categories and just like really thinking about how everyone can be seen in the picture, not just queer people, queer people and allies, but no matter who you are or what your body looks like, there's so many brands out there that are ready to see you for you, no matter who you are. And I think that's just like such a beautiful thing. And I, I get really inspired by so many of these businesses. In addition to the businesses you're interacting with, there's of course the people out there using this resource. So what are some encounters, maybe digital or otherwise, that stand out to you and have kind of reaffirmed and continue to reaffirm your mission with Everywhere is Queer? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I've gotten so many messages that have made my little queer heart cry in the best possible way. But one message is uh, I got one from a small town in Europe, um, in Latvia, which is a country, but small city in Latvia. And this human said, you know, I can't be out and proud to be queer in my city as it's very dangerous. Um, but knowing that the day that I can leave my city and move somewhere else, I see all the pins on your map and it's just giving me life to know. And it's giving, it's making me so excited to experience life as an out queer person. So it's things like, and messages like that. Um, I've gotten messages that people have found, you know, gender affirming healthcare provider uh, in their city that they didn't know existed via my map. Um, I've once again had so many people message me and be like, we're so excited to plan our road trip from here to here. And like I said, we would have never done it. And all things to your map, we're now heading the road. And it's, it's messages like that, that keep me alive. And also hearing that like a therapist has found five new clients. I just got a message about that um, because people found them on the therapist on our map is such a beautiful thing to me. Charlie Sprinkman is the founder and CEO of Everywhere is Queer, and we spoke last June. Everywhere is Queer will also be available as an app in one week. To find out more and explore the map for yourself, head on over to wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll meet a Wisconsin native looking for love on Fox's reality dating show, Farmer Wants a Life. Plus, we'll have a new installment of our Sounds Like Milwaukee series. Join us again tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.